0: start in 1st Thessalonians so you can open up your bibles to 1st Thessalonians we're going to do an overview of this terrific letter I don't know about you but when i read this letter i'm like wow how do i not read this letter more This is like one of the hidden gems in the New Testament. Uh, It is great. It is great encouragement. It is great application. um, And it's great comfort, too. There's all of these things found in the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, But before we begin, let's pray and ask God to uh, continue to open up our minds and our hearts to his word. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for uh, this morning that we get to gather together. We thank you for the time that we've been given to open up your word and understand um, understand your word more, and to seek to apply it more. We pray that we would have uh, eagerness to hear, eagerness to understand, um, and eagerness to apply the things that we learned this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so it's a story you are all, probably at this point, very, very familiar with. It's, it's a story of fatherly love. It's, it's a story of a child and their parent. But it's a story with, 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 with a sad twist. The sudden Suddenly, the, the child is torn away from their parent. And, and the parent is burdened by the loss of their child. They seek to be... Reunited with their child again and again and again. But their child cannot be found. They keep getting blocks in their way to their child. They have This parent has friends that come alongside him, that, that help him and assist him as he tries to reconnect with his child. This is a wonderful story of parental love and affection. And of course, you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I mean I'm talking about the story of finding Nemo, right obviously. <laughs> I mean, I could see how you would think that was the letter of First Thessalonians, but actually, I was talking about finding Nemo, uh, but it does show you that there is a, a true parent has deep affection and longing for their child, and when there's separation there is there is this there is this sadness. There's this pain. There is this angst. There's this worry. There's this urgency to find that child again. And, and this is actually the kind of illustration, the metaphor you could say that that captures my mind the most as I read First Thessalonians. A parent that has been torn away from their child and is eager to see their child again. This is, of course, referring to spiritual children in the faith. This is Paul um, wanting to see the Thessalonians again because he has been torn away from them for a time. I don't know about you, but maybe it's because I'm a dad. But when I, I can't wa- there's a few things that I cannot watch because it grips my heart very closely. Um, and one of those things is when children are threatened in a movie. It just like makes me, makes my stomach like tighten up and get very anxious and want to punch something. It's just, it's just, it just cuts to the core of who I am because maybe because I'm a father and I just can't stand to see a child alone or threatened or orphaned. That is, that is kind of what it's like to be a dad. And Paul kind of, gives us an inside look on what it's like, what it feels like to be a father in the faith. You have this urgency for your children. Now, just a few uh, background notes about the letter to First Thessalonians. This, of course, can be found in Acts 17 and 18. If you are reading in Acts, that's where you find it. And it's probably around... Uh, 50 or 51 AD. This is, of course, Paul's second missionary journey. It's right after the Jerusalem council. And Paul has been going um, kind of he he started going across, you know, modern day Turkey, and then he had that Macedonian call in Troas and in, in the western part of Turkey. Should say over here, western part of Turkey, and that's when he went over into the Greek Peninsula and Achaia, Macedonia. That's where he was over there, and of course, that's what we learned about last week. He went to Philippi, the church of Philippi. It was the church of the unexpected joy. That's what Philippi was, and then after Philippi, he got hey Abner, can see you. He got kicked out of Philippi, and he had to run to Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, or the the city of Thessalonica, you should say. Um, And that's where Paul is. And this was right after Paul's shameful mistreatment in the city of Philippi. And we see here in, in Thessalonians 2, uh, verse one and two, that he, he's kind of thinking about this. He, he's saying, this is, I came to you right after I was shamefully treated at Philippi. And of course, shamefully treated is maybe almost an understatement, right? He was beaten with sticks and rods. He was thrown into a prison and and he was mistreated in that way. And then he was sent, to, uh, sent away, basically, uh, sent away out of the city. Um, and this is interesting because it's in Thessalonians where Paul kind of reveals the inner motive for how we could keep going. I don't know about you, but if, if I was shamefully treated for preaching the gospel, I would think twice about how eager I was to try that again in a new city. But it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, but though we had already uh, suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi as you know we had boldness in our god to declare to you the gospel of god in the midst of much conflict they had boldness in god where do you find boldness it's not from yourself from your own strength but from the cur- the courage that comes to you from god god is on my side god will give me strength god will work a miracle where i feel like it's impossible he finds boldness at Thessalonica to preach the gospel to them. And as we see in Acts 17, many come to faith. It says um, in Acts 17, verse 2, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And it says in verse 4 of Acts 17, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul. So that's like Jewish people, some of them. But then listen, who else was persuaded, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few leading women. By the way, that's code language for a lot of leading women. So there was a a massive uh, Gentile population that was drawn to Paul. And now it says there in Acts 17 that it was three Sabbath days, which is referring to three weeks. But probably Paul was in Thessalonica for longer than three weeks. Um, He was just preaching and ministering in the synagogue for only three weeks, and he received the typical Jewish treatment from the synagogue, and he left and went to the house of Jason and started ministering there. And the reason why he probably was in Thessalonica for more than three weeks, more like maybe a few months, or maybe even up to six months, was uh, because we know in Philippians 4.16 that Paul received two gifts well at Thessalonica. He received two gifts from the church of Philippi. Now, Thessalonian, uh Thessalonica, I keep wanting to say Thessalonians, sorry. Uh, Thessalonica is quite a bit, uh, there's quite a bit of real estate in between Thessalonica and Philippi. So it probably wasn't the case where the Philippi, uh, Philippians sent him one gift and then immediately sent him another gift. It probably was several months that passed. So all to say, Paul was probably in the city of Thessalonica, ministering for several months, but not that not that many months because he's obviously torn away from them. After a period of fruitful ministry, we read in Acts 17, 9 through 10, that Jewish uh, Jewish jealousy sparks against Paul again, and they kind of overtake him and they kick him out of town. Um, the church there is under great threat and they have to bribe the city officials and, and promise them that Paul will not return. And so Paul is kicked out overnight and then he is he is left to go to Berea, and then the the Jews follow him to Berea, and then he is he is forced to run away down the peninsula a little bit to Athens and then eventually to Corinth. And it is in Athens where uh 1 Thessalonians 3 1 says that Paul could bear it no longer, and he was willing to be left behind at Athens, and he sent Timothy to see how the Thessalonians were doing. Once again, this is a father who has been pulled away from his children, and he is anxious for their spiritual state. He was pulled away from them early on in his ministry. He was forced to leave before he was ready to, or before he thought they were ready to stand on their own. So he's willing to be left Behind and alone in Athens, so that he can send Timothy, one of his faithful, godly servants. Matter of fact, the way Timothy is described is very interesting to me. In 1 Thessalonians 3 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel. That's who Timothy was, God's co worker, to establish and exhort them in the faith. And then we see in 1 Thessalonians 3 6, Man, what a hard book to say, right? In First Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul is now probably at Corinth at this time in Acts 18.1, and now he is receiving news from Timothy and Silas about the the spiritual state of the Thessalonian church. And look at what he says there in Thessalonians six. 3, 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you are always remembering us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For, For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And what uh, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Right there, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, all the way down to verse 10. You kind of have, this is the setting. This is the situation. This is the reason why Paul is writing. You He's writing to tell them, I have been missing you, I've been longing to see you, I've been anxious to know how you guys are doing spiritually, and I am overjoyed to hear this good news about you. That is where we're at. And and actually, 1 Thessalonians then could be kind of separated into two parts. First off, we see this first half of Thessalonians, 1 through 3, and this is kind of Paul's fond memory. Or, or thanksgiving and prayers for the Thessalonians and earnestness to see them again. This is Paul's uh, recollection of their faith, reflection on them. And this is Paul missing them in the first three chapters of Thessalonians and kind of, kind of arguing for why he has been absent. Maybe there are some people in the Thessalonian church that are saying, you know, Paul kind of took off kind of quick. You know, Paul's not really tried to reach out to us at all where where what's been going on with Paul maybe he doesn't really care for us that much maybe we should listen to some other people that are telling us other things than what Paul is telling us so the first 3 chapters of Thessalonians are kind of Paul remembering them and and and, and kind of kind of defending his his spiritual spiritual love for them, and then in the last two chapters, First Thessalonians four and five, we see an urgency in Paul. It's it's a it's apparent, urgently wanting to share with them some important spiritual truths to young growth in their life. So when you read First Thessalonians, it's a great book for young believers to read because it it gives you kind of signs and evidences of true spiritual go- growth. And it also gives you some great applications for standing fast and growing in maturity. And that's kind of how we're going to approach it. We're going to look at the the first the first three chapters really quick and then we're going to look at the, the last three chapters just with an application. Uh, the the first the first three chapters, the basic application that you should be looking for is hey, this is what this is what true Uh, This is what true spiritual life looks like. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to truly have the Word of God at work in you. It's to be like the Thessalonian believers. Am I the real deal? Am Am I truly a Christian today? have I had have I had an experience like what the Thessalonians have had do i have leaders in my life like the Thessalonians had and continue to have and then in the last two chapters of Thessalonians you should approach it like this hey these are the these are the the applicational basics of Christian maturity. These are the things that I need to do as a young believer to grow and to continue to stand steadfast in my faith. So let's just let's just break up into two points here. I'm gonna have lots of little subpoints for you, but like two points. The first three chapters I've titled A parents' joy in New Spiritual Life. The first three chapters of Thessalonians are A parents Joy in New Spiritual Life. And and I'll just Kind of comb over a few of these, but there's just so many things that I kind of want to share with you. That I'll, I'll try to I'll try to be kind of quick and brief. But but just let's just look at their the the joy that Paul has as a spiritual parent in the new spiritual life of the Thessalonians, and he's he's remembering their spiritual life. He he that's what he's doing, and we see this starting out in his thanksgiving. In First Thessalonians one two all the way through ten, he is giving thanksgiving and prayers of thanks to God for the true spiritual work that has happened in the lives of the Thessalonians. Now, I want to just kind of camp out here in the first chapter real quick because I know this is very interesting to you because you want to know well, what is it, what does it mean to have uh, to truly be saved, to truly be converted? What, what are the basic signs, the first signs of life spiritually? you know if when when you become a father there is this great day called the birthing room it's a great day for you and, and a horrible day for your wife but it's a great day for you you're all excited you're eager to see this new life and you're eager to find out what this new human life is going to be like for for us we always wait to kind of find out the gender is it going to be a girl or a boy is he going to look like me or look like her Usually, newborns, you don't want them to look like either of you because they don't look that cute. If, you're, if I'm being honest with you, newborns don't look that cute. But anyway, uh, y- y- and you're eager to see these first signs of life. Now, the first signs of life, the good signs that you look for in new life physically are, are curious. You, you, want to see, you want to hear crying, like, right? For the rest of my life, I don't want to hear crying. But for the first few hours, I love to hear crying because that means everything is happening right Right? You want to see a baby that's hungry. You want them to be very hungry, right? You want them to eat well. This is, this is signs of life in a newborn child. And Paul kind of has similar first signs of life here. And this is a few, a few of these just to, just to go over. First off, he kind of summarizes all of the, 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 the signs, the good signs of spiritual life there in verse 3 when he says, I'll run at it. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is that is the signs, the, the good spiritual signs of life, summarized right there. If you have these things functioning in your life, that is a good sign. It's a sign of spiritual life. Now, you'll see we have these these three these three constructions there work of faith labor of love steadfastness of hope the of 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 construction in in greek that's called a genitive construction and that can mean a 100 or not a hundred, a lot of different things. You can translate genitives all over the place. Uh, It could be faith's work. It could be working towards faith. You know, it could be loving labor. It could could mean all sorts of things. That's actually a very uh, ambiguous phrase there, but probably what's going on there is this is a expressing the, the source of these, of these actions. So notice it is work that is coming from faith. It is labor that is coming from Love, it's steadfastness that is coming from or sourced in hope. Uh, and that's very instructive, right? True, genuine faith is a living faith. It's, it's a faith, right, that produces work, it is uh, a love that produces labor. It is a hope that produces a fixedness, a steadfastness in your life, where you can endure hard things and be strong throughout it, because you have a hope fixed on the living God. This is just kind of a snapshot, a summary form of spiritual life. I like how NIV translates it, actually. They translate it like this. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. Uh, True faith produces action. And we'll see this modeled in the Thessalonians, and we'll also see it modeled in Paul as well, as their spiritual parent. But just a few more good signs of spiritual life that Paul reflects on as he writes this. He says, you've had a clear regeneration. He said, you have been clearly born again. You have been clearly saved. Notice what he says. uh, Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's, that's, that's how you know you've been truly saved, been truly born again. Because the word of God is not just words. It is power. It is convincing. It is, notice how the Holy Spirit is between those two. It is through the Holy Spirit that's opening your eyes to see spiritual realities. You hear the gospel, and you believe it, and it is a supernatural work of God in your life by the Holy Spirit. You have been clearly regenerated. You've been clearly saved. And then notice, notice a good sign of spiritual life is also you are early in uh, imitation, you are early in your imitation of your parents. You quickly start copying your parents. Five, The second half of five goes on. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life is marked by this desire to imitate godly examples that God has given you in your life. And you also want to imitate the Lord as well. That is what you, uh, that's the knee-jerk new life response that a believer has. I want to be more like Christ, right? I believe his word. It is clear to me through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want to become like Christ as well. And also, you have an unmissable, unmissable new kind of life. An unmistakable, unmissable new kind of life. Paul says in 7, and you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, When you are born again, your life radically changes. For them, it's because they stopped serving idols. And notice what they started serving. A true and a living God. You, you have new eyes to see the truth of God, and you start following Him. And, and suddenly, old ways are idolatrous ways, foolish ways, empty ways. And you start living an unmistakably new life. Like I like to say, don't just live a life that anybody could live, you've been born again. Be radically different. Be radically saved. Be radically born again. Don't just try to fit in with the world. You've been born again. You've been delivered from the kind of idolatrous functions that the world does every single day. You can be new. You can wait and delight and serve the true and living God. Be new. Be radically different. We also see Paul, as he's reflecting on them, not only reflecting on their faith, but he's also reflecting on his ministry among them. And maybe perhaps he is sensing that they are starting to have some doubts and concerns about his love for them. And so he begins to remind them of his love for them. He talks about his, uh, his ministry among them. And the first thing, probably if you're reading, you'll you'll notice that he he had a true and a faithful ministry because he was constantly focused on God, right? He says this in verse 2, right? His boldness came from God because he was relying on God. And he wasn't trying to please men. He was trying to please God, verse 4 says. And he constantly was ministering, constantly was ministering uprightly Because he had a perception that God was watching him constantly. That's why he had this great and upright ministry among them. And that's actually the key to having any kind of godly ministry. Whether you're serving in the nursery or you're in a pastoral position, any of these places, you have have a functioning eye that God is constantly observing and watching me at all times. And notice how he describes himself. He describes himself, verse 7, as someone who was gentle among you. Now, that could be referring to the metaphor of being a mother, but it's interesting that that word gentle is the same word that you could use to say, I was like an infant among you. Right? He, he, it could be that he's saying, I had innocent character. I wasn't after money. I wasn't seeking you know, fame from people. No, I was, in, I, was like a, I was like an innocent infant, and I was innocent in my character. And notice his ministry was also like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. She, he was like a mother in his selfless concern for them. Remember how I was so selfless with you, he says. Uh, I was so being affectionately desirous of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is, this is true God-honoring ministry, right? You're, you're like a mother in your selfless concern. You're not just giving words of truth, but you're also giving yourself to people. And this is who Paul was. And I like this. I, I got this from our pastor, Steve. But he, he also says, there's another metaphor here. He was like a brother to them in 9 and 10, right? We, for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. You are witnesses. How holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you. They were exemplary in their conduct. They were like brothers, good examples. That's what a brother is. That's what a sister is, a good example. That's who they were. And they were also, of course, like fathers. We see that in verse 11. We were like fathers with his children. Well, how do fathers function with their children? It's kind of strange to us to say this, but they talked a lot. That's how true God-honoring fathers exist. They talk a lot, right? They exhort They encourage, they charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's who we were. Remember who we were. Remember who we were. And then, of course, Paul goes on to say, and this is what was happening. Maybe you didn't know this about us, but we were grieved being separated from you. And so he goes on to say, we were also like we were also like bereaved parents, you could also say in verse 17. Uh, "You, We were torn away from you, brothers. That's the same word that could refer to uh, you were orphaned from us, and we were separated from you, and we were longing to see you because you were our children, and we were earnest and wanting your spiritual welfare. Because, as it says in chapter 2, verse twenty. Or twenty or nineteen. What is our hope and our joy and our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. I was talking to Serena a little bit this last week, and we were thinking how cool and amazing heaven will be. Right? It'll be a place of. Perfect beauty and glory and splendor. There's going to be, and what we were talking about was, want not it be great to be in a place where there's no longer trash on the side of the road? I don't know, that gets us going maybe, but that gets us really excited. But think about what heaven will be and what your glory in heaven will be. It won't be just that you're going to be all alone, surrounded by beautiful mountainscapes. It will also be because you will be surrounded by people. Uh, that is Paul's glory and his crown and his joy and his hope of boasting in the Lord. It's going to be people that he's invested in and worked hard for. That's what's going to bring joy in heaven to God's ministers. That's a very exciting thought. He had pain at their separation, but he also now has joy, as we talked about at the report of Timothy that you see there in verse 6. And then he ends on this benediction. I I love this. There's two benedictions in the letter, and the first one comes in 3.11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul is overwhelmed with love and affection that he must uh, speak out this benediction before he moves onward, right? But this is Paul's fond memory. Let's, let's look now really quickly at kind of the parents' urgency. We, we saw there the parents' joy in the, the new spiritual life, but now let's look at the parents' urgency for spiritual growth. You could look at it like this, the the beginner's guide for quick and stable spiritual growth. That's what Paul goes on to explain there in 4 and 5. Um, He makes a transition here, finally, and this is probably like the the Philippians, finally, where it's more of a transition, finally, than it's finally. This is the last thing I want to say, finally. Um, But he, he, he kind of says, kind of a summary of everything he's going to do. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This is a parent saying, you're doing well, keep doing it. more and more and more and here I'm going to give you some quick tips, right? This is a parent. And, and, and you'll notice this. As, as he, he writes this, he's writing faster and faster and faster. And his exhortations come quicker and quicker and quicker. And as our pastor, Steve, would say, it's kind of like you saying goodbye to your child that's going off to college. And as they're walking out the door, you're giving them some more instructions. And as they're putting uh, their bags in the back of their car, you're giving them quicker and quicker instructions. And as they're closing the door to, to say goodbye to you finally, you're saying, and don't forget to brush your teeth and stay away from bad people and all these kinds of things, right? Your exhortations become faster and faster as Paul goes on. It's, I, I almost can feel like his hand is cramping. That's because he's moving so fast. Like chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. It's just like, I've got to get a few more things in here. But, but what, are the, what are the kind of beginner's quick guides to early and stable, steadfast spiritual growth? Well, let's look, let's look at them in kind of sections. How many do I have here? I've got... Four sections. That won't take us too long, right? Four sections. Here we go. We're going to do them really quick, right? Number one, be on guard. Be on guard against sexual immorality. Be on guard. Now, there's something I didn't tell you earlier in 3. But notice this, Paul says in 3.6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and of your love and reported that you are always remembering us kindly, notice faith, love, there's a typical triad for Paul to say faith, hope, and love, but notice he only says faith and love. It seems to suggest maybe that their hope has been shaken a little bit by their sufferings. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in 413 and 51 that he's going to talk about why we should have hope and encouragement. Like, this is, the, this is the pressing issue. What about people who die? I thought Jesus was going to come back and deliver us from tribulations and troubles, and now we're experiencing a lot of tribulation and trouble. Is Jesus really going to rescue us from wrath? Because it feels like judgment is already here. No, no, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the encouragement that comes at his coming. But notice, more important to Paul than talking about the encouragement that we have in his coming is... The danger that uh, is constantly seeking to derail you spiritually with sexual immorality. He puts this one first for some reason. This seems to be one of Satan's favorite ways to cause you to slip up and stumble. Sexual immorality. And and look what he says there in verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Yeah, sexual immorality is a basic word. There, it's nothing fancy. It's just referring to any kind of sin that is outside of a heterosexual marriage. That's. It. it can refer to adultery. It can refer to anything. It can refer to any kind of sin that is outside the context of marriage. This is sexual immorality. Paul's saying, "Stay, stick clear of all of it." Uh, sin in your mind, sin in your body, sit clear of all of it. Why? Because, number one, this is God's will. It's God's will that you be sanctified. It's God's will that you abstain, that you keep yourself holy and keep yourself honorable. Verse four, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Honor is someone who is exemplary. Right? That is God's will for you, that you live a sanctified life. But, but that's, that's very encouraging, and that's motivating. right? I want to do what God wants me to do. But Paul also gives you a few more motivations for why you should seek sanctification in your life. Number one, uh, sexual looseness is what people do who don't know God you're different. You know God. You have a relationship with the true and living God. Sexual looseness, sexual promiscuity, sexual immorality is for those people who don't know God, who have nothing better than this life, that have no greater relationship than that they can find in this life. And remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, right? You turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. But this kind of behavior is for those kind of people that don't know God. It's it said like in background situations and you could look at it in, in the background of this letter a little bit. That, you know, in the ancient world, uh, sexual looseness was considered normal. It's okay to have a few drifting thoughts every once in a while. It's okay to have a little pleasure on the side. If you're actually trying to live like a Christian is supposed to live, in the pagan's mind, you are being unreasonable and irrational, illogical. Why would anybody want to do that? This is only natural. This is only reasonable. This is the kind of life that people that don't know God have and, and we'll go on. There's further motives. Another motive is this sin actually wrongs your brother. He says in verse six that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Right? It's it's a sin that actually hurts fellow believers. It hurts wives, future wives, future husbands. It, it, it hurts other people in your circle. Is it all that wrong to be motivated? By the purity of others in the way you conduct yourself in the world? Paul doesn't seem to think so, right? He, he does things, he limits his freedoms for the spiritual good of others. And that should be our motive in talking about um, sexual things as well. We limit something we could do, could wear, for the benefit of somebody else. But there's another motive here. God will discipline those who are immoral. And possibly, those who are immoral will prove themselves to be unbelievers, and God will judge them. But even here, it's kind of frightening. God will discipline. He he says, no one wrong is brother, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and now solemnly warn you, the Lord is an avenger. The Lord is a discipliner of those people that do not do these things, that do not grow in sanctification, that wrong their brother particularly. But then look at the the final motive, you could say, in verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, you were called for holiness. That is a motivation right there, right? God didn't just call you so you could live however you wanted. This is the reason why Christ died. For holiness to occur. This is why you were given the Holy Spirit. For holiness to flourish in your life. You, you could think of it like this. The whole triune God is, is focused on the sanctification and holiness of God's people on earth. Shouldn't you be? Shouldn't you be concerned about your own sanctification? You were called to holiness. That is the first urgent warning that Paul has, the urgent kind of appeal for spiritual growth. Be on guard against sexual immorality. And then he goes on to say, secondly, be characterized by brotherly love. Be characterized by brotherly love. You see verse 9 all the way through 13. Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write To you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Be characterized by it further. Brotherly love is family affection. Be characterized by people that love one another as a family loves one another. Now, just two thoughts on what this looks like. Uh, two, uh, Two things that this kind of characterization produces in your life. First off, you have an unflinching generosity with people in your life that are in need. You, you should be people characterized by sacrificial brotherly love. I'm, I'm always quick to spend myself so that other people can have what they need. Matter of fact, Paul modeled this himself, did he not? In First Thessalonians 2, 9. Uh, nine and eight he said, Remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel to you they They worked so that others wouldn 't be a burden to them, but notice verse verse eight be like a mother. He also said, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own selves, right They were eager. They, they were unflinching in their generosity. That's what brotherly love means. But notice what it also means there. It also means you work hard to not be a burden to others. That's what Paul's saying there in verse 411 particularly. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as, as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Brotherly love insists and compels you to give what you have to others. Well, at the same time, brotherly love says, I'm going to work hard so that none of my brothers uh, I am depending on so that the, so that I can be someone that gives to other people and not just somebody that's always taking be characterized by brotherly love we're told uh, number 3 be encouraged in his coming be encouraged in his coming. Now you see there, we don't have enough time to go into it in detail, but 4:13, he talks about the encouragement that comes from the knowledge of Christ's return to deliver us from the wrath to come. And here the Thessalonians are concerned about people that have died, that have fallen asleep. Are they going to get different treatment at the Lord's coming? And Paul insists that no, Christ's coming will be glory for them as well. And then he also encourages them with just knowledge of what the, the day of the Lord will be like. And let's just encourage you. It's going to come. The Lord's day is going to come. Even after seven years of tribulation, the Lord is going to return to earth and nobody is going to be expecting it. Everybody's going to be living like the Lord's never going to come back. That's what he says here. The Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying uh, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. If, If you're concerned by the normalcy of the world around you, be encouraged this is the kind of, this is the kind of world that Christ will soon come to. Be children of the light, he tells you in the second half of 5, 1 through 11. Walk as children of the light. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation for, as it says in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him forever. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Notice verse 11 and 418 have the same kind of encouragement, right? Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. End times vision and hope brings you encouragement. The Lord is going to come. He's going to set all of these wrongs right and we are going to be with him forever. That's the reason why he died so that we could be with him in sanctification and in blamelessness. Uh, be encouraged at His coming. But one final one, be blameless as you wait. Be blameless as you wait. What should you do while you're waiting for the Lord's coming? While while you're encouraged about the future, how does that impact you in the present? You want to seek blamelessness. You you want to be eager to grow in sanctification. And this is where it really starts getting rapid fire. And, And this is kind of always my favorite part of of letters of Paul because I'm so fascinated by the things he puts together. But notice what he says. Uh, first off, he says for being blameless is respect and appreciate leadership. You see that in five, twelve, and thirteen. And of course, Pastor Steve just went through this, so you guys totally understand what First Thessalonians five, twelve, and thirteen are about, right? But notice all he is saying is basically know what your leaders are doing. Notice their labor among you. Uh, they are over you in the Lord. They're admonishing you in the Lord, but then don't just know what they're doing. Also, esteem them, appreciate them, hold them in high regard in your heart, right? If you're having trouble receiving words from your pastor... Is that because your pastor is failing you or because things are gobbling up your affections and you're becoming resentful towards your pastor? Esteem them, it says, verse 13. Esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work because of their work. Be at peace among them. Be at peace with yourselves. Respect and appreciate your leadership. Help everyone, he says in verse 14. This is a really great verse. You should pin this up on your wall if you struggle with people and how to interact with them. The basic ingredient you need in your life to interact with other people, to help other people in the Lord, is patience. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 14. Be patient with them all. So regardless of who you're dealing with, you need to be like a farmer and... And planting soil takes time and patience, and you need to have the patience of a farmer. But there's different kinds of people that you have to have different interactions with. You need to admonish the idle. Or maybe you see the footnote there, the disorderly, the undisciplined. You need to have strong warning for those kinds of people. You need to encourage the faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? Those people who are are fearful. Maybe they have doubt or they have fear in their life. They are fearful. You need to help the weak. Who are the weak? Those people who don't have enough resources in themselves maybe to get through a particular problem. You may very well n- need somebody who is stronger in your life someday to help you along in your walk. And you may very well be someday someone that's able to help someone that is weaker. But once again, what's the ingredient of all these relationships? patience. It is patience. And then, of course, he says in verse 15, do good consistently. Notice there is no limit to who you should do good to. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That, that is limited to everyone, right? There is nobody that you should not seek uh, to do good to. Maybe. Uh, So, there you go. Uh, Do good consistently. Rejoice and give thanks in everything. Notice when you should rejoice, give thanks. Rejoice always, verse 16 tells us. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. You want to grow in your Christian life? Make it a habit to constantly be rejoicing, constantly be in prayer, constantly be doing all of these things and because there is not a moment where you don't have a reason to, right? There is not a moment of your life that you do not have a reason to rejoice and give thanks because you have a new life with God. You know God, the true and living God, and you're waiting for him to return from heaven and make everything right. You never have a moment in your day where you don't have a reason to rejoice. Unbelievers have constant reasons for unthankfulness. You could say the characteristic of unbelievers is unthankfulness. That is not... What it should be for you, though, you should be characterized by rejoicing and thankfulness and prayer. Um, Be quiet. Be quiet in how you hear God's word. Verse 19 and 20. Be quiet in how you hear God's word. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Prophecies is hearing the word of God in your life. And of course, before the Bible was uh, written down, this was uh, entrusted to men who were recognized as prophets, but they were held on the same level as the word of God, as it says in 2.13, right? Uh, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You, you receive the words of prophets as if it's the word of God. Now, we have the word of God in our hands right now, right? Don't we? We have the word of God in our hands, so we should receive it as the word of God. And notice, notice how you respond to God's word being taught and preached in your life is also how you're interacting with the Holy Spirit in your life as well. Do not quench the Spirit. And finally, walk carefully, walk wisely. We see this, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Notice, you do this, you're able to test everything when you are under um, good and godly teaching of God's word. You are able to hold fast to what is good and you're able to abstain from or refrain from what is evil in your life. But that comes, I think, from preaching. And then notice he has this final benediction. For those of you that are discouraged by how difficult this sounds, how hard this sounds, like, wow, sanctification is hard. I'm not sure if I can do this. Notice how Paul ends this letter, verse 23. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's God's will that you be sanctified. But He Himself will also guarantee that it comes about. Through the resources that He puts in your life and through His own power, through the Holy Spirit. That is an encouraging word. Let's pray. Father God in Heaven, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word that is so refreshing and, and so helpful and so encouraging and challenging and eye-opening. We pray that we would have ears to hear it better. We pray that we would have hearts to receive it quicker. We pray that we would have feet to walk in it faster. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.